I'm looking forward to building a world in which the software developers in the world don't have to go get a corporate job in order to pay their mortgage. I want to build a world in which we can all work on open source software and work for each other in a mesh network of jobs. And I think that that's how we're going to advance this space out of just investments and speculations and into jobs and into the mainstream. We're going to build a better financial future for the world's software developers. And if you check out Gitcoin, then you can sort of see mechanically how we're going to do that. Hi, and welcome. On today's show, we'll be talking about alternative methods of funding both on and off the blockchain. My name is Adam B. Levine, and I'm joined as always by the other host of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Today, we're also joined by special guest Kevin Owaki, co-founder of Gitcoin. That's with a G as in GitHub and an early user of quadratic funding. Hi, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. Kevin, we really appreciate you being here. Thanks a lot. And on behalf of all the hosts, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. So to jump right into it, in the world of cryptocurrency, money is important. Depending on your view, Bitcoin itself is or aspires to be money in a very real way. And without question, the craziest times in crypto have surrounded or even just been entirely about fundraising for projects. This hasn't always been positive, though. In the later stages of the initial coin offering craze, it seemed like raising money became the point rather than what it was being raised to accomplish. In its aftermath, it's become increasingly obvious that what's being funded matters at least as much as how you get the funding. But how you get the funding is important, too. A couple of weeks ago, Andreas and I were talking about an open source project he'd actually used Gitcoin to fund. Andreas, can you tell that story again here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, every now and then I come across an idea or find a gap in the ecosystem where I think it would be really useful if we had a software gizmo to do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, even though I can code myself, I don't have the time to embark on these little projects. So as I've done in the past, I looked for a way to fund a developer to do this work. And this time I decided to use Gitcoin. I've been aware of it and looked at it in the past, but now I had a real project to sink my teeth in. So the project was to develop a plugin or a change in the wizard of the Electrum import in order to enable it to discover derivation paths in a mnemonic phrase that has been used in a different wallet where the user doesn't know what the derivation path is and keeps having difficulty recovering funds. This is a problem a lot of newbies have. And so I put up a bounty, basically. And a bounty is a pot of money, in this case, denominated in the stablecoin DAI, so that it's USD equivalent value. And I put up a $1,000 bounty for about 40 to 60 hours of work approximately, I estimated to develop this capability. I wrote a specification as a GitHub issue. And the nice thing about Gitcoin is that it integrates directly into GitHub. So I could take the issue where I described the desired feature in detail and then attach the bounty directly to that and then have developers come and pitch to take on that bounty and execute it. It was completed a couple of weeks ago, paid out, and it's a feature that's being merged into hopefully the next version of Electrum. Now that tool that you had created, actually, you and I had a little back and forth about it because it turns out that you don't have to necessarily be a newbie to run into the problems that you were trying to solve there. And we actually wound up using it to solve a big problem I've been working on for a couple of months, but that's gonna be another episode entirely. Today we're talking with Kevin, and Kevin, can you just kind of take us through the basics of Gitcoin? What's kind of the goal and how is it operating? Let's just start off with kind of the most basic question for people who aren't familiar with the project. 
Is there a Gitcoin or is this something that builds using, as Andreas was saying, DAI or other types of tokens as a reward? Yeah, that's a great place to start. There is no Gitcoin token. Gitcoin is a place where you can get coins if you're a software developer in exchange for doing (laughs) software development tasks. But we have, unfortunately, from a branding perspective, gotten swept up with a lot of the projects that did do ICOs in 2017, even though we never did an ICO. So take us back to the beginning, kind of what was the thinking about this project in general? What was the problem that you were trying to solve? And then how did you wind up solving it? So I've been working in web startups for the last 13 years, pretty much ever since I graduated from school. And every software project that I've ever worked on has been an open source software project. So whenever I start a new startup, I will use Python, which is an open source programming language. I will use an open source database server. I will use an open source web server. And so every time I've built a startup and all the startups that you see in TechCrunch are standing on the shoulders of giants of open source software. And basically, every time I've built a software startup, I've been using open source software. And open source software creates billions of dollars of value for the world. But there's no good way for software developers to monetize the work that they do in open source software. And so that was the sort of founding reason why I created Gitcoin, which is a double-sided market that connects software developers to the people who want to fund their work in open source software. And the sort of insight is that now using the blockchain space, we now have billions of dollars of capital that's going to open source software. Whereas before in the old financial system, all of the money that goes into IT goes to some back office on Wall Street. So what if we could build a marketplace where the software developers, that can sort of be the routing mechanism for the money going to software developers and have it be a blockchain native project? That's what Gitcoin is. And that was the genesis of Gitcoin. I think the other aspect of Gitcoin that fascinates me is the ability to raise funds in the form of grants and even matching grants for specific causes that are not related to one feature or application, but instead are to fund organizations that are doing charitable work or that are doing work in relation to coding academies and things like that. So, for example, I have provided matching funds for a series of grants that are going to organizations that support Black developers in the crypto space. And it's Crypto for Black Lives. And it's a project that got started a month ago. And you can either provide matching grants or you can get your funds contributions matched by one of the grantors and fund these projects like Black Girls Code and various code academies, as well as funds for bail money that's being used in the Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, I also want to point out, we've talked a lot on the show about the benefits of earning crypto as a way of acquiring it that maximizes your privacy and also the perceived like risk, you know, as opposed to investing money in it that you've earned some other way. And this is a great opportunity for folks who have the skills to earn crypto. Yeah, so I think that that's a really important point. And as we think about expanding the user base of crypto, I think that when you think about the sort of like mainstream consumers of finance tools, most people's touch points with finance is with their jobs, not with their investments. And so I think that having a mechanism for people to earn crypto is going to be a really important way to get a new generation of people bought into the crypto ecosystem to get their stake. Did that play a factor for you, Kevin, in creating this platform because you wanted to have opportunities to code and earn crypto? 
Yeah, that was part of it. You know, I also was kind of dissatisfied with my ability to try jobs before I buy them. The sort of like standard model of recruitment is that you get contacted by a recruiter on LinkedIn. They say, oh, I have a job. You do a screening interview. You have a call with the team. Then you do a whiteboard interview. Then you do reference checks. And like, you're basically going full time after that. That had been my experience. And I really wanted a way to kind of be a little bit more promiscuous and try before I buy with a lot of different projects and see if there was compatibility. And instead of like approximating the work by doing a whiteboard interview, wouldn't it be great if we just did the work? So the employer gets the work done, the interviewee actually gets to work together with the company, and then you can kind of stepwise increase trust with the company from there. And so that was part of the motivation behind the genesis of Gitcoin. But as Andreas noted, we're no longer just a bounty platform. We've got other ways that developers can earn crypto. And I think I want to circle back to the grants stuff and drill in on that a little bit later. But yes, the answer is that created Gitcoin to provide a way to try before you buy and to earn crypto with software jobs. I love that because you're kind of turning the traditional model on its head. You know, like a lot of people when they apply to a school or even a job, it's like they kind of forget that they're supposed to be interviewing the company or the school as well as being interviewed themselves. You know, it's like a two-way thing, but it's often framed as, oh, I would be so lucky to get this job. Like, never mind if you would actually like the job. So I really like that you're disrupting the traditional interview process. And don't get me started on recruiters. I mean, I think in the crypto space, we spend a lot of time talking about intermediaries that extract a lot of value and don't provide a lot of value. You'd be surprised how many software recruiters, not all, buy a $99 a month LinkedIn subscription, do a lot of cold outreach spam, and then charge 20K per people that get a full-time hire into a company. And so disrupting recruiting has been a real important part of the Gitcoin project. I'd like to add one other aspect that isn't immediately obvious, which is that it's ironically unfair that you have been bundled in with ICOs just because the word coin is in your name. Because in fact, I think Gitcoin is the antidote to ICOs in that a lot of the open source projects that have no monetization model that under other circumstances would have to fundraise through a coin offering instead can use grants and bounties to do common public good software development financed by the users and the companies that want to use that software directly without going on to doing some kind of coin offering in order to monetize it. So not only are you not an ICO, but your work actually helps projects avoid that particular avenue. Yep, for sure. So Gitcoin Grants, which is the project that Andreas was alluding to, is basically kind of like a crypto Patreon. And the way it works is that you can set up a fundraising page for your project. Typically, it's a project in crypto, but we've seen uh, about a thousand people set up Gitcoin grants. And the sort of gimmick is this thing called quadratic funding, where we'll raise about 200K per quarter, and we'll put that into a matching fund, where for two weeks every quarter, contributions to these Gitcoin grants are being matched by that matching fund. But the sort of the gimmick, the one weird trick is that we're using quadratic funding in order to distribute the funds from this matching pool, which is basically just a fancy mathy way of making sure that the matching pool goes to the projects that have the most breadth of contributors, not the most amount raised from the crowd. So this is an important point. We're optimizing for the democratically popular public goods out there. We're optimizing for the projects that are broadly popular, enough that people will put $1 in each just to cast their vote of support for that project. 
And the cool thing is that once some of these projects get over 100 contributors to them, the matching ratios are just insane. Like there was a project that was on Gitcoin Grants this most recent round where if you donated a dollar, it would release $200 worth of matching funds from the matching pool just because it matters so much that you actually contributed, not the amount that you contributed. So we're really passionate about not only moving the fundraising mechanisms, the capital formation mechanisms of crypto forward from ICOs, but also in removing the centralized intermediaries who are providing grants to crypto ecosystem projects to pushing power out to the edges and allowing the crowd to decide where the money goes. And that's quadratic funding and that's Gitcoin grants. And you know, I don't think it totally replaces what ICOs did in 2017, but it's a meaningful step forward and it's live today. So it's not just a theory, it's something that's happening today. We've done $2 million worth of crypto funding on Gitcoin grants in the last 12 months. I think that also achieves something rather smart, which is a lot of projects are very focused on what they're building and forget that not everything exists within a repo when you're trying to build a product that people will use. And what you've sort of built within this quadratic model is you front-loaded an incentive scheme for the sunk cost of onboarding and getting engagement with more users and actors in their ecosystem. And so a lot of projects will just have some really great engineers that are building, and then they might die on the vine or their project might not reach critical mass for their repo to just be sustainable as a community. And this notion of $200 for a $1 donation is effectively front-loading into the dollar donation all of the incentive needed to really build and engage and spend that couple of hours to bring someone from kind of curious to actually involved in your community. So I think it ends up being great because it kind of teaches them to do something without ever needing to express it. Like price incentives are kind of crazy that way. But it's great because you're not only incentivizing the developer, but you're actually paying them to build a more healthy community. I totally don't understand quadratic funding. Not even a tiny bit. And what I've heard about it is actually quite negative. And I think this is a great opportunity to dispel some myths because the way I've heard it being described is very Ponzi-like. But I know that's not the case, but that's how I've heard it described. And I really would love to get some clarity on that. Okay, so before we do that, though, let's talk about how funding normally works in these type of matching grant programs. If you're going to donate to NPR or something like that, right, and they'll be like, we have matching funds up to blah, blah, blah number, right? Basically, what happens is that if you give $100, then the matching funds, depending on what the ratio is, might be $100, you know, that comes out of a larger donor that then gets contributed in order to incentivize you to contribute. But quadratic funding looks at it a different way. Kevin, as you were saying, it's aiming to be more democratic, not with the size of the donation, but with the number of people who are kind of getting through that initial friction of contributing anything. And then quadratic funding takes the matching funds and it makes that person who contributed a very small amount, it makes that much more valuable in order to incentivize that. Is that a correct understanding? And can you kind of walk us through how this is different? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think the comparable with quadratic funding is one-to-one matching. And so the thing that Vitalik and Glenn, who are the authors of the paper about quadratic funding, were trying to do when they built quadratic funding was to basically optimize for projects that had broad support, not just the support of the rich oligarchs. And so that's why they came up with this formula where the amount received by each project is proportional to the square of the sum of the square roots of the contributions received. Pretty easy, right? (laughs) So that's a really mathy way of saying that 
in the traditional scenario, I give $100 and the matching funds are $100. But also, if I give a million dollars and there happens to be enough funds there, then that can pull a million dollars worth of matching funds up. Whereas in this situation, if I give $100, then some number is going to be given, but it's a lot less about the amount of money that I'm specifically putting in. And it's much more about how many people are putting in money at all. Exactly. So like the way I think about this is that it's called quadratic funding because the amount of the matching fund that you buy for every dollar that you put in declines quadratically. So the first dollar that I put in will get matched by a dollar. The next dollar I put in will get matched by 50 cents. So like basically the amount of the matching funds that you can buy, quote unquote, by contributing more money declines quadratically. And so that's how I like without having to understand the math equation, sort of like visualize the way the formula works. Okay, so I appreciate you kind of going down the rabbit hole with this a little bit there. Let's turn to the statement that Andreas said before and sort of the Ponzi-like perception of this, at least in some quarters. Kind of what do you think about that? Yeah, so basically quadratic funding optimizes for the number of contributors, not the amount of funds that they put in, right? And so what this does is it creates a rational crypto economic incentive to get your number of contributors up as soon as possible when the Gitcoin grants matching round starts off. That way, the matching ratio gets better. May I just pause for a second? When we say contributors, are we referring to the people who are doing work or the people who are giving money? The people who are giving money. Okay, thank you. Contributors to the grant. So it optimizes for the number of contributors to the grant. And basically, this creates a foot race where you as a grant owner want to shill your grant as soon as possible during the grant matching round. Because once you have five contributors, then a $1 match for a new contributor could be worth $25. But once you have 25 grant contributors, then a $1 match could be worth $100. So it creates this sort of foot race at the beginning of the round where basically you want to get the number of contributors up so that you can get the create a rational crypto economic incentive for the later comers to get a better match ratio. But I don't think that that's Ponzi-like because no one's cashing out other than the grant owner. Like just by getting in early, it's not like you're cashing out before everyone else, which is sort of my understanding of what a Ponzi scheme is. But Andreas, maybe we can dive in a little bit more on that. I think that's more a description of a pyramid scheme where you make earnings if you're early and latecomers carry bags, whereas a Ponzi scheme is kind of paying out existing investors out of the investments of new investors. And it doesn't sound like this is either of those things. Yeah, when you say a contribution of $1 could be worth 25 or something, I think that's where people think maybe it sounds like a pyramid scheme. To me, it actually sounds like it's turning the pyramid upside down by placing value on having more contributors versus being like the earliest one or having a big downline or something. It also breaks the notion of a Ponzi scheme in a couple of ways. One is there's no affiliate residual. So you're not actually increasing your income on the basis of another person adding another person. But also the expectation of return for somebody who donates isn't there. It's performance of work. If anything, it's pretty analogous to just what user acquisition is. (laughs) And so, you know, the Ponzi scheme notion of Bitcoin is you all hold Bitcoin. So if more people hold Bitcoin, your Bitcoin goes up. But in this instance, there is no token into which you're increasing the affiliate value of everyone else by holding it. It's just a company, right? And so if you think of it more like an Uber, where Uber said, what's the cost of acquisition of a user? How does it increase the equity value of our marketplace? They basically have decided, what if we just spent 200 grand in marketing acquisition for new users? but did this table where we'll incent our actual platform contributors 
as a mechanism for our cost of user. And, you know, it's way easier for a project to acquire their first 10 users than their last thousand. And so if anything, it just seems like they're spending a quarter million each year giving people better bang for their buck because they like the KPIs on the acquisition of users to the platform. If anything, I would think that this would be as much a Ponzi scheme as the, you know, millions of dollars that Uber spent just giving people $30 rides was a scam or a Ponzi scheme. It was just a company spending money acquiring new users to a platform. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, you know, the other aspect that I think matters here is that everyone's putting their money into these projects in order to sort of signal that they actually care about these projects. And there's an interesting outcome here in that you're getting a ranked list of all of these projects at the end of the round that like, say you're the Ethereum Foundation or say we're going to do Gitcoin grants with Zcash eventually and other crypto ecosystems. So you can basically get a ranked list, but through the ecosystem, which projects are the ones that actually a broad democratic base actually really cares about. I think that there's like more implications here than just the capital formation part, but your points about capital formation are totally legit and valid as well. I think this is much more like the early ideas of the DAO in that it's a fundraising mechanism for startups, but with the one caveat, it's a very important caveat, that there's no return on investments. When the DAO started, I proposed a project that explicitly said that this is a research project to produce open source software and would have zero return on investors. And that generated a lot of interest, but also a lot of pushback because people said we shouldn't be funding things that don't have a return on investment. And other people said, no, we should. Why not? I mean, maybe this just benefits the whole ecosystem. I don't see why we should gatekeep these kinds of investments. And it sounds like Gitcoin is entirely that. Yep. So like, you know, going back to the Gitcoin origin story, it's all about open source software, right? Which is I've come to learn what's called a public good. It's something that's non-excludable and non-rivalrous, which means that I can't exclude you from cloning my repo. And the fact that Andreas clones my repo off of GitHub doesn't stop Adam from cloning my repo off of GitHub. That's a public good. Whereas private goods are excludable and rivalrous, which means that you can stop people from consuming them. And typically those are the type of projects that will have a return on investment. You know, like a startup, like an Uber, you invest in the Uber shares and you get a return on investment. But public goods is explicitly what we've set out in order to fund on Gitcoin. And sort of the magic and the curse of public goods is that they're non-excludable and non-rivalrous. And so there will be no return on investment for Gitcoin grantees other than, you know, growing that open source software. We're standing on the shoulders of giants with open source software, and we'll all have a better digital commons if we contribute to open source is the idea. I would also say that this is a lot more analogous to Patreon than anything like the DAO was trying to achieve. There's a lot more evil that can occur when you ask someone to give you their money on the basis of pretending you'll one day give it back to them versus saying, you know, hey, this is a common good. Would you like to help support the continued development and building of this as a common good? And so you look at all of the open source that Patreon has achieved and all of the harm that the DAO has. And hell, I could go on to no end about how made the DAO to be a scam from the get go. And it's phenomenal to see something that's following the Patreon outlook. <laughs> Jonathan sharpening the axe. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I'd like to take us in a slightly different direction, which has to do with civil resistance of this model for quadratic funding. 
So a Sybil attack is an attack in a distributed system setting where an attacker spins up identities. And this can be nodes in a network. It can be IP addresses. It can be any kind of identifier that's used that can't be uniquely tied to a single person and make it appear as if there is an army of participants who are not at all real. You may have also heard a similar term called sock puppets. Sock puppets are used when, in the narrow case of a Sybil attack in social media, where you create multiple handles to pretend like there's a lot of people agreeing with you or disagreeing with the person you're disagreeing. Sock puppets are the social media Sybil attack, but Sybil attacks happen on all kinds of distributed systems. And in this case, that would be spinning up fake funded Ethereum addresses in order to fund projects to gain the quadratic funding advantage. So. So far, I've heard a lot about how in this model for quadratic funding, the important metric is the number of distinct contributors to a project. And my understanding is that the way that is measured is by distinct addresses that are contributing through wallets. And that does not seem to be very civil resistant. So how do you distinguish between a real contributor with a distinct address and a contribution that comes from someone who has purposely constructed thousands of addresses that are funded with fragments in order to appear to be an army of contributors? Yeah, really great question. And I think that we're really zeroing in on what Vitalik has called the Achilles heel of quadratic funding. I mean, it's an ongoing research problem. You know, if one new contributor contributed a dollar and get $200 in matching funds, you know, $25 in matching funds, $100, $200 in matching funds, then there's a rational crypto economic incentive to make up a new identity, right? And so long term, I believe that crypto economic games, you basically what you have to do is you have to make it cheaper to defend the system than it is to attack the system. And so basically, my view is that Gitcoin grants is an iterative experiment. We've done six rounds of Gitcoin grants, and each has just been a two week round through which we've kind of experimented with different UI schemes different quadratic funding configurations. And basically my goal is to get more Sybil resistant every single iteration that we go through. And if you think about the Sybil resistance stack, there's basically common criminals, which will be unsophisticated attackers. And then there's organized crime. And then there's like nation state level crime, right? So typically when I enter a new tribal arena, the first thing like a maximalist will say to me is like, oh, well, like this is totally Sybil attackable by like a sophisticated actor. And I'll say, well, okay, that's true. But like right now we're sort of just focusing on rising the tide of Sybil resistance to change the economics for the unsophisticated actors. And then the next iteration, we're going to do the sophisticated actors. And then eventually, if there's enough money that nation states will actually care to attack this, then we're going to tackle the nation state sort of like civil resistance problem. But right now we're only doing 200K a quarter. So I don't think like North Korea cares enough about Gitcoin grants to actually attack it. But anyway, so Andreas, this is all like framing in order to actually answer your question, which is that basically every contribution to Gitcoin grants, we are starting to build up this thing called a Sybil score, which is basically like, we will look at all of the attributes of your contribution from your IP address to where the funds came from on chain, we are actually collecting your SMS address as of this round. We're going to introduce Bright ID. We may introduce full-on KYC if we have to down the line, although I'd really not like to have to do that. And so basically, we assign each contributor what's called a Sybil score. And this allows us 
like tripwires where we can see who's creating fake accounts in order to contribute to what grants. And the other piece of input that matters a lot is community suspicious activity reports. So basically, there is a crypto economic incentive to go big when you're Sybil attacking a Gitcoin grant. But as you get to the top 10 on the Gitcoin grants leaderboard, more people start looking into your project and start investigating those projects. And then we'll report back, hey, this one looks like a Sybil attack. So I, mean, I guess like, Andreas, the answer to your question is, we've got a series of sort of schemes internally that we're using to make the system more Sybil resistant. But I don't think that we're all the way there yet, nor would I represent that we're all the way there yet. And it's just a hard ongoing research problem that we're really working on. I think the argument that you made is really good, which is you optimize for the problem you have now. You don't solve for a problem that doesn't yet exist. If the system works now with the degree of civil resistance that it has, then you've solved that problem at the scale that you need to solve it at this moment. It's also the bane of voting. Everyone thinks voting is a simple problem until you try to solve this very little discrete issue. Yeah. So. I actually have like a more expansive view, which is having decentralized identity that is privacy preserving and a dense network of Sybil proof identities is the thing that's holding back the next epoch of digital democracy. So basically, once you can solve the Sybil problem, you can construct all these DAO type digital democratic systems where you can be sure that the identities who are participating in the system are not sock puppets. And that unleashes the next epoch of digital democracy. And so basically what I'm trying to do with Gitcoin Grants is Gitcoin Grants is not only funding the Ethereum ecosystem, but it also has a data emissions trail where we're actually trying to solve the hard problem of civil resistance. And so how could I like tokenize your identity, like make a distributed identity that other applications can kind of swim in the wake of Gitcoin and we can solve this problem of civil resistance and enable the next epoch of digital democracy on Ethereum, Bitcoin, Zcash, all of these different blockchains. And I think solving civil resistance is one of the many hard problems that's sitting in between this and that vision. So what do you do if someone doesn't deliver on what they received funds for? Are funds staggered? How do I prevent against that? What are the consequences of that? Oh, the kneecap project. Yes, let's talk about that. <laughs> What's the kneecap project? I don't get it. That's just a silly joke about funding a project of thugs going around kneecapping people who didn't deliver on their coding right. promises. <laughs> <laughs> but Hopefully that's not included. <laughs> no, that's not included. But it could be with the rebirth of digital democracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen anyone creating a grant for that, but our solution is to leave it up to the market. I don't want to be policing what everyone has delivered with respect to their grant, and I want the market to decide which grants are delivering and which ones are ascendant and which ones are failing. And so basically our, our approach is to do a small round of Gitcoin grants every couple of months. And then you can basically look at those grants and what they've delivered in the last couple of months and decide whether or not to fund them in the next round. And so basically what this does is it pushes out the problem of who's delivering and who's not to the market. It should not be Gitcoin's decision to say that. It should be up to the market. And we're building tools to make it easy to re-contribute to the projects that you contributed last time in order to cast that vote on the contributor side of things. And we've also built up a tool where grant funders can update their contributors about what they've done since the last Gitcoin grants round. And some people have 500 Gitcoin grants contributors. So there's a decent audience that you can kind of maintain and manage on Gitcoin grants. But the answer to your question, Andreas, is not to create a kneecap grant it is to push the problem out to the market and let the market participants decide who's delivering and who's not. It might even be something that the recipients of the grant would solve, like 
they'll tell you how they're going to, you know, meet different milestones and how they're going to provide the best service for what you invest in. Yeah, I think it's important to clarify also that people who are paying bounties or grants, while they do have to put the funds up at the beginning in order to show that they're serious about it, this isn't an escrow scheme where Gitcoin has to decide if the work was done or not and then dispute resolution. The bounty offerer can simply withdraw the bounty at any point in time and not pay it out, which of course will destroy their reputation in the market because you've attached that as a user on GitHub with all the reputation that that carries. Now, in my case, when I'm making a bounty offer, that comes with my reputation attached, so it's easier to believe that I'm going to pay out perhaps, whereas for others that may be more difficult. And it goes back again to the Sybil and reputation infrastructure you're building. Yeah, and the social norms of the community, right? So, you know, we think a lot about crypto economic schemes and what's the rational economic behavior, but when you're staking your identity and there's a set of social norms that you're expected to follow, then that's also kind of shifts the rational behavior to not only being rational economic behavior in this one-off instance, but also how do I maintain my reputation in this growing space over time? And it's about creating those sort of social norms and rules into the community. The other aspect of this, which I think it may not be obvious to those who are not software developers working in the kind of new era of collaborative software development, is that GitHub has become, to a great degree, people's collaboration center, but also their resume. And if you're a software engineer, show me your GitHub is the first question you get asked by any sophisticated company that wants to hire you or project that wants to look into what you're doing. It is enormously influential in the hiring decisions. And so developers have to very, very carefully safeguard that reputation. And their work is very public, visible, and in fact, measured with metrics and analysis and even a little tile grid that shows the frequency of contributions over time, which has become a very famous feature of GitHub. So that carries a lot of weight. It is a form of proof of work that shows your historic work as a developer. Yeah, one of my favorite flexes is to make my GitHub contribution grid into my Zoom background or to show that off because <laughs> I've been building Gitcoin for three years and I think I get like 4,000 commits per year just out of loving this problem and, and building this community. Okay, so we talked about kind of the DAO earlier. It was at least mentioned in passing. One of the things that I thought when looking at this project is I've seen this type of thing proposed a number of times as a DAO, but Gitcoin itself is not a DAO. What was kind of your thinking when you were starting this? What are the reasons for this not to be a DAO or do you have ambitions for it to become a DAO? What's the relationship here between Gitcoin and kind of the DAO model, either in the past or present future? Well, a lot of our customers are DAOs or people who are building ecosystems, but my fundamental counter trend bet that I made in 2017 is I'm not going to do a token. I'm just going to focus on product and community so that I don't have to fight with regulators for the next two or three years. And my other fundamental sort of counter trend bet was no one gives a shit about how decentralized this thing is if it doesn't even work. <laughs> so like, let's just build something that works and let's start building that network effect of more developers attracts more funders, attracts more developers, attracts more funders, and we can make it into a DAO later. Because my counter trend bet was that even though people care about decentralization in this space, they first want something that works and then they want it to be decentralized. And so we built something that works. It does 500K a month worth of value to software developers now. And so now we're starting to think of, well, how do we remove Kevin as a centralized intermediary, as a BDFL from this project? 
What is a BDFL? Sorry. Oh, yeah. A BDFL is an open source term. It stands for Benevolent Dictator for Life. Oh. <laughs> like a friendly dictator. Like Linus Torvalds. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, so basically, I don't want to be the BDFL of Gitcoin. And so there's two ways that we can do that. One is to turn it into a DAO to release a governance token. And, you know, there's questions about U.S. securities law and how we will do that, even after we've got a working network and things like that. But then the second direction that we could go is there's this actually really interesting movement called platform cooperativism, which is basically you have a startup and they still have a management team, but you basically don't go to Silicon Valley in order to raise that funds and you don't like IPO through Goldman Sachs and give your shares and your upside to the the rich oligarchical class, you basically find a way to distribute your funds to your end users and find a way to make your users owners of the network. And so that way, as a manager of Gitcoin, Kevin will be able to always choose for what's best for his user owners, as opposed to always deciding between, oh, do I optimize for my investors or my users? So you said distribute, but I think you mean raise from the user owners, right? You're not distributing to the user owners, you're raising from the user owners. Right. So yeah, we would distribute shares and there would be some sort of fundraise through which we finance the company through the distribution of those shares to the end users subject to US securities law and Reg CF and all that kind of stuff. And so basically, I think that, you know, we definitely want to be a project that's not only by and for the community, but owned by and for the community. And so there's a question about whether or not a tokenized utility token is the way to do that, or if actually taking our equity and putting it on the blockchain and allowing users to participate in the upside of Gitcoin is the way to go. But I'm happy to say that Gitcoin actually had its first and hopefully not last month of profitability recently. So as opposed to most blockchain projects, we are not just burning cash willy nilly. We're actually trying to build a real business and a real sustainable thing here. Okay. So kind of at the very beginning of this episode, Andreas talked about his project, which he funded or put up a bounty for denominated in DAI, the Ethereum-based dollar-picked stablecoin from MakerDAO. So talk to me about sort of on-chain compatibilities. You know, it's not a DAO. And one of the advantages of not being a DAO is it means that you can potentially interact with blockchains that the smart contract that operates the DAO is in itself you know, running on. So if you had a DAO that was Ethereum based, then to take funds from anything besides the Ethereum blockchain or a token on it would be challenging because the DAO wouldn't necessarily natively be able to do that. That's not a problem you have. So what's kind of the current compatibility and what's the ambition for the project as far as both tokens that you can offer rewards in and collect grants in? And then similarly, what blockchains do you hope to interact with if not just the one? So Gitcoin's mission is to grow and sustain open source software. And we believe that open source is a fundamental good for the world. And while we're primarily known as an Ethereum-based project, you'll notice that our mission is more oriented around something bigger. It's around open source software. So the actual answer to your question is that ETH and DAI are the number one and two tokens on the Gitcoin network. If you go to gitcoin.co slash leaderboard, you can see the token leaderboard. We've done about $1.5 million worth of gross marketplace value through ETH and about $2 million through DAI. And then, you know, there's wrapped ETH, there's synthetics token, there's the REN token. Any ERC20 token is supported by the Gitcoin network right now. But our ambition is to go totally cross-chain. So basically, one year from now, we will support Zcash, Celo, Zillica, hopefully Bitcoin, 
hopefully a bunch of other coins that are in the top 10, top 20 by market cap. And the ambition is that anyone who's building out a crypto ecosystem should be able to incentivize work in their native token. And I think that that pluralistic vision is pretty important for the cross-chain future of Gitcoin. And our mission is about open source software, not just about Ethereum. And so in a year or two's time, you'll see a lot of different blockchains represented on the Gitcoin network. And I think what's really cool about that is that we've got 40,000 software developers that are within the Gitcoin network. And so we can kind of allow software developers to cross-pollinate across different blockchains. You want to build community interop, having people who have professional experience in multiple blockchains is a really great way to do that. And we hope to facilitate a new era of community interop between all of these different blockchains. And community interop is not as important as having actual technical interop, atomic swaps between these blockchains. But community interop is, I think, an important thing for people to think about in an era that is very tribalistic, in an ecosystem that is very tribalistic, how do we build bridges between these blockchain ecosystems? Because I think the final boss is open source money versus the closed fiat system, not Bitcoin versus Ethereum, not Ethereum versus Zcash. And I want to build interop between these communities in order to facilitate that. Yeah, I think you'd be shocked the number of people who are Ethereum maximalists who won't think Bitcoin's the enemy the moment they start getting paid in it. <laughs> is there that old quote about a man can't understand something that threatens his salary or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to kind of give a bit of color to this because there are lots of ways that you can already do this in cross-chain manners, including using a decentralized exchange, using wrapped Bitcoin. And in my case, when I funded this with DAI, I actually did it by taking some of the ether that I had basically sitting around in cold storage and using it to make a collateralized DAI vault from which I extracted some DAI that I invested in a number of different places, including this grant. So essentially, my ETH was sitting around doing nothing. And using the collateralization capability, I was able to borrow DAI from my own Ether and use it to fund things like this. It's an interesting ecosystem. You can do a lot of very interesting combinations. And of course, I would love to see Lightning Network and Bitcoin integration into Gitcoin. And if you need some help with that, feel free to reach out anytime. What is the work that needs to occur for us to see other blockchains on Git? And when are we going to see the Git bounties for them? <laughs> yeah, so you can always tweet us at Gitcoin and just let us know which blockchains you want to see. We're trying to build blockchains that the community will actually use and that there's already pent up demand for. So just adding your voice to the conversation by tweeting us at Gitcoin is a way to do it. And yes, if you want to volunteer to help build that integration, then we will throw some crypto coins at you in order to do it. We love dogfooding building Gitcoin by using Gitcoin. Well, so I'll just ask the obvious question. What's it going to take to get Bitcoin in there? Because I got to imagine that if there's some demand for use, it would be coming from that sort of largest in the space community. So basically what we've done is we've broken ground on a cross-chain architecture that basically assumes very little about each chain that it's integrating with. We just assume that each chain has a public-private key pair and then an address system, and then we can plug in a block explorer. So basically that allows us to be very promiscuous in terms of which blockchains that we integrate with. And you know, Bitcoin's like number five on the list right now. So if we can get more tweets from people and more sort of demand from people who want us to build Bitcoin in, then I think that that will help get it higher on the list. But the good news is because we built this cross-chain architecture, 
that it's not that much of an engineering lift to do once we see that there's demand for it. Well, Kevin, we really appreciate your time today. If people are interested in learning more about you, learning more about the project, where should they go, you know, outside of gitcoin.co, any other important URLs? And, and is there anything specific that you're looking for from any open source developers within our community? Yeah, so if you Google Gitcoin, I think we've finally reached the point where Google doesn't autocorrect it to Bitcoin. <laughs> so unlocked that. But yeah, you can find Gitcoin on Twitter at twitter.com slash Gitcoin. And then you can go to gitcoin.co in order to see our system. And, you know, I'd love you to post a bounty to engage with our community. Anytime you ever need a software developer, then please think of Gitcoin and use us and tell us what you love. Tell us what you hate. We are an open source project. We are totally transparent. We are totally iterative. And I try to make sure that Gitcoin sucks less every day. So, you know, if you have feedback, then send it to us and let us know how we can push it forward. And I'm looking forward to building a world in which the software developers in the world don't have to go get a corporate job in order to pay their mortgage. I want to build a world in which we can all work on open source software and work for each other in a mesh network of jobs. And I think that that's how we're going to advance this space out of just investments and speculations and into jobs and into the mainstream. We're going to build a better financial future for the world's software developers. And if you check out Gitcoin, then you can sort of see mechanically how we're going to do that. So thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I'll see you out there on the wild, weird internet. And that's a wrap. Thank you very much for listening. Today's episode featured Kevin Owaki, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, and Stephanie Murphy. Music for today's show comes courtesy of Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats with editing by Jonas. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, or tips, or you just want to talk, send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>